It is a joy to be with you this morning. I've heard so much about your church. And so when Joel asked if I would come and serve you, I had to think about 10 seconds. And what a privilege it is to preach to you today. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 15. This morning we are going to be looking at a few different texts, but I do want us to start with these two precious verses in Acts chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. It's taking place at the Jerusalem Council. They are sending a letter to the Gentile believers to encourage them in a number of different aspects of the Christian life. And in verses 25 and 26, this is what they say. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend time this morning, learning what it is to risk our lives for the cause of Christ. Lord, did you do know what no preacher can ever do? Lord, I can't open people's eyes. I can't stir people's hearts. But you can. <laughs> Through the gift of the Spirit, you can do those things. You can inflame passions in our heart. You can open eyes. You can give us burdens that we never had when we walked in because your Spirit is at work. Lord, I do thank you for your word. Your word is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Your word runs after us and pursues us. So would it run after us and pursue us today? Would we hear your voice, Lord? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it was just over a year ago that my wife and I and our kids went on our summer holiday. Our summer in Australia is January. It is now. We have come back from over 100 degrees to freezing here for some reason. It is so cold. Yesterday it snowed. I thought it was white sand coming from the sky. I had no idea what was happening. The rest of the Aussie crew is, what is this? They're just running out. But last year in January, I went on holidays. And as usual, I took a book with me. And the book of choice for that particular year was Becoming Elizabeth Elliot by Ellen Vaughan. It is a wonderful book that had an effect on my life. For those of you that are less familiar with Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries who made contact with the unreached Orca Wadani tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle. That tribe literally stands for the word savage. That was the savage tribe that Jim Elliot and his brothers wanted to encounter and to tell about Jesus. They had worked hard on this for a number of months, even years, trying to find out any type of language that they could relate to these brothers with. And they thought they were doing well. They thought they had gained contact. There was actually two ladies that they'd started to talk to that wandered into their area, and so they started to talk to them, just trying to learn the language. And so eventually, on January the 8th, 1956, all five of these brothers, including Jim Elliot, decided that the day was the day they were going to try and make contact with this tribe, this savage tribe, and they thought they could be accepted. But sadly, they weren't accepted. As soon as they made contact with them, all five men were speared to death. They were found floating down the river with spears in their backs. They were only recognizable by their watches 
and the jewelry that they had on. Imagine what it'd be like to be Elizabeth Elliot. You've just lost your husband. You have a one-year-old child at the time. One could understand if she was to turn around and want nothing to do with mission at that point. But two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, with her three-year-old daughter in hand, would once again seek to walk into the jungle to gain access to this very same tribe that killed her husband. And in that picture that will come up, you can see her hand in hand with a child. There you go. She's actually beginning to start to walk to gain access to this same tribe. And as I read about her story, I was so affected. She did gain access with the tribe. She starts to tell them about Jesus. They start to give their lives to Jesus. That's the power of the gospel, including six men that actually killed her husband. There's another photo in the book where she's actually arm in arm with men that actually killed her husband. And as you start spending time in the book, you're affected by it. So many people came to know the Lord. They began a local church there. Today, there's actually a pastor's college on that side as they're still training men for ministry right there to try and tell others about Jesus and plant local churches. But as I read this book, I was amazed at her life. But I was also amazed at why did she do it? What is it that drives you to do that? What is it? that would drive you as a single mom with a three-year-old child to think, I'm gonna have another go. And one of the things that struck me is you deduce from the book, you understand that she really understood something wonderfully. There was a truth that was burnt into her heart as with a hot iron, and it's simply this. She understood that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. Understanding that her life isn't her own. Understanding that Jesus is worthy of it all. She understood for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And brothers and sisters, that's what I feel burdened for this morning from God's word today for all of you. To help us understand that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And for us in the West, certainly for us in Australia, and I'm sure it'd be true for you as well here in the United States, this is something that I think we need to hear about quite a lot and linger on quite a lot because we don't exactly live in places that are high on risk, do we? We actually live in places, if we're honest, often in Western countries that are high on comfort and that are high on safety. We're not constantly being exhausted to just take risks, take risks. No, we like to be pretty comfortable and we like to be pretty safe and I am no different. You see, one of the greatest challenges that I think we face in Western countries is not primarily persecution by the world, but seduction from the world. Our greatest challenge is not primarily persecution, although that is coming, it does happen in part. Our primary challenge is we get seduced into it, we get pulled into it, and the narrative of our world, I think, is comfort and safety. Be comfortable and hashtag stay safe. You know, I'm no different. Comfort is a big deal in Australia. And we love to be as comfortable as possible. We like to sip Prosecco by the Opera House as much as we possibly can. People are happy to work hard, but then they want to play hard all the rest of the time. And I can get sucked into that. I actually took my wife away a few years ago. I remember vividly, we went to a hotel right in downtown Sydney, overseeing the Opera House, actually. It was beautiful. And one evening, I sat back in the hotel. We're in the bar together. We're having a great time. And I just stopped for a minute and I must have gone glazy-eyed because my wife Emma said, what are you thinking about? And I just said, well, my love, I've realized 
this is where I belong. <laughs> I did, I did. And it was just totally audacious, and she did exactly what you just did. She started to laugh at me. She's like, what on earth are you on about? And I said, no, my love, it's true. This is where I belong, and more than that, look around. These are my people. And I wasn't even joking, sadly. I was just desperately true. I'm like, you know, I've traveled a ton. I've done loads of stuff. I just want to sit down now and just wait. This is so beautiful. I, I love comfort. And listen, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings that God has given you. They're gifts from the Lord. We should enjoy these blessings. That is an appropriate thing. But here's the problem. The problem is when we try and smuggle in that comfort as if that is the normal part of the Christian life. That if I'm truly passionate about following Jesus, that will mean that I will be healthy and I'll be comfortable most of the time. When we try to smuggle that in as a norm, that's when the problems occur. Francis Schaeffer says, in the world, we're always standing on quicksand. And I think he's right. In the world, we're always going to be pulled into the cultural narrative. And one of the cultural narratives is be comfortable, be comfortable. Yes, be all in for Jesus, but make sure you're comfortable at the same time. We get sucked in. And we also get sucked in, I think, by safety. People in our cultures, they love to be safe. You know, people think that Australians are wrestling like kangaroos and crocodiles all the time. No, they're having facials in the city. That's what they're doing. That's just the men. People love to be safe. They just want to be safe. Australia was the first country in the world to mandate seat belts in cars. First country in the world to mandate you have to wear a helmet when you ride a side bicycle because we just want to be safe. So don't believe everything you see on the, on the adverts. We love to be safe. And I think it's a Western reality. Let's do all we can to control our environments so that we can be safe. But the truth is, even as Christians, we can't control that much. In fact, really, we can't control much at all. We can't control when our heart might stop or when we might get sick. We can't control what oncoming drivers may do on the road even as we drive home. We can't control the food in a restaurant to ensure there's no bacteria in it. The truth is, we can't control that much at all. I think COVID taught us that. We all thought we're totally in control. And then we're stuck in our houses for ages, not allowed out. What's that about? Our lives are far more fragile than we think. John Piper, in his wonderful book, Risk is Right, says safety is a myth, yet it is a myth and mirage that we can so easily believe in and live by. We think we can have safety and security and aren't addicted to it, and yet we can so easily give ourselves to it more than we realize. Michael Reeves follows that up in his book, Rejoice and Tremble. He says, though we are more prosperous and secure, and though we have more safety than almost any other society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something that we can never quite reach. And he says this, protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. I think he's right. We're always standing on quicksand in the Western culture and the narratives that are in our culture is hashtag stay safe and let's be comfortable. Yeah, we're all in for Jesus, but just do it in a way that's safe and comfortable. And that's why I think we do well to be reminded by God's word, washed by God's word in understanding that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. <laughs> This book is filled with men and women that understand if I'm going to follow Jesus, then that's going to take risk. And it's not always going to be comfortable. 
And we need to be washed by it for the glory of God. And so this morning, I'm actually gonna look at five stories. Now don't worry, you're not gonna be here till three o'clock. They're just short stories. But I wanna help us see this theme through God's word. And I wanna do that so that faith may be cultivated, that courage may be strengthened, and that risk may be the norm right here in your local church. Because for the cause of Christ, risk is right. Let's begin then in the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 15, verse four, the apostle Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I love that text. He's helping us understand everything that was written in the Old Testament in part is written so that we may have hope, that our faith may be stirred. All those stories that you hear about in Sunday school are not just for kids. They're for big kids, adults. And they're there to stir hope in our heart, faith in the Lord and the way he is and who he is and what he can do. It's such an amazing thing to say about the Old Testament that it stirs hope. All the historical stories, all the laws, all the proverbs, all the Psalms, all the prophecies, whatever was written was meant to give us hope. So let's begin then with the story of Joab and Abisha in 2 Samuel chapter 10. You know, as you follow along with this story, the Amalekites had shaped, shamed the messengers of Israel and made themselves odious in the sight of David. And as a result, they have decided that they are going to hire the Syrian army, some 20,000 soldiers, to fight against the Israelites with them. As a result, there's now going to be two armies taking on the Israelites. So Joab, the commander of Israel's forces at the time, finds him and his army completely surrounded by the Amalekites on one side and the Syrians on the other side. And in that moment, he has a distinct, he has a decision to make. Are we going to run or are we going to risk? And he decides, well, we're going to risk And so he divides his army into two. He puts his brother Abisha in charge of one troop of fighters and he leads the other ones himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 11, this is what he says. He says to his brother, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. That was the worldly wisdom going on. I mean, he's a strategic thinker, and that's good and wise as a leader. Listen, let's divide up. Let's take on the two different forces. And if you're struggling, we'll come and help you. And if I'm struggling, then please come and help me. But then he says this to his brother, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. What he's saying there is, listen, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I do trust in the great God. So may he do what seems good to him. You talk about going, not knowing. They are about to fight a war and they do not know how this is going to work out, but they understand something. They understand for the cause of the Lord, risk is right. This is not a time to retreat. This is time to trust in the Lord and watch what he does. And what did he do? Well, in God's kindness, he enabled them to win those wars. He enabled them to fight another day. But it's a wonderful illustration of how risk is right. We then see another one in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. 
I love the story of David and Goliath. It is not just for kids. It's for all of us. It's such an encouraging and wonderful story to encounter. It takes place in the Valley of Elah. Two armies found themselves poised for battle. On the one side of the valley gathered the army of the Philistines. I know you say it Philistines, just here to help you. I'm an Englishman, Philistines. Um, gathered on one side is the Philistines. On the other side is the army of the Jews led by King Saul. And the way this is working is as they divide these two armies, they're shouting at one another from different sides of the valley. And there is a massive guy called Goliath, as we all know, who stands up and basically makes it clear, hey, this is the way it's going to work. One of you fights me. And whoever wins, ultimately the other army will submit to them and they will be victorious over the entire nation. One on one. The problem is, as the Israelites look on, they're aware Goliath is massive. You know, this is a world over reality, isn't it? There's all sorts of things still called Goliath. It's from the Bible. Anytime anything is massive, we think of it as Goliath. But no one wants to fight him. No one wants to get involved at all. Well, meanwhile, David is a young teenager at the time. He's away from the battle. His father doesn't want him to fight. It would appear David is not ready to fight. He's a young guy. Plus, he likes hanging out with sheep and playing his harp. So he doesn't seem the type to necessarily be going to fight anybody anytime soon. But after many days, his father sends David to his three older brothers who are there to fight. He sends David in, listen, check up on your brothers, give them some food, try and care for them. Let me know what's, what's going on. So David goes in, and as soon as he arrives, he hears this massive guy shouting at the Israelite army, basically, you know, come and fight, come and take me on, no one will take me on. And David starts getting around the army, the Israelite army, and going, are you going to go, are you going to go, I don't, what's going on, somebody go fight him. And his brothers are like, David, shh, shh, he's massive. Well, David's initial impression is, listen, this is crazy. Why will no one fight him? Where is your faith? He's a young teenage boy. And so David decides, well, listen, if no one else will, then I will. So he goes to see King Saul. And in 1 Samuel 17, verses 36 to 37, this is what he says. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You know, as you know, in the story, Saul is then trying to dress David in all his armor to the point where it's kind of humorous in the story. It's like David can't really move when he's got all the armor on. It's like he's so weighed down. It's like this isn't going to happen. So he takes it all off and he just goes as himself. And as the story goes, he gets some stones and a sling. And the very first one, as he winds up, smashes Goliath right in the temple. And he dies. And all the Philistines start to run away and flee. And the army goes after them. They have won a victorious war. How? Well, because David, at a fundamental level, understood for the cause of the Lord, risk is right. We can trust him. He is faithful, he is good, he is kind. For the cause of his glorious name, risk is right. We must move forward. 
It's not just young men or old men that we see in the Bible like this either. It's young and old women as well. Queen Esther, for example, in the story in Esther chapter 4. Another example of courageous risk out of love for and for the glory of God. This story takes place back in the 5th century BC. There was a Jewish man named Mordecai who had been carried away to Babylon during the Jewish exile. He himself at that point had a younger orphaned cousin named Esther who he had adopted as a daughter and so she came into Babylon with him and as the years went on she grew up into a beautiful young woman so much so that she captured the king of Persia's attention. This was a woman who was a beautiful on the inside and on the outside and as he got to know her he realized that and so he made her his queen. Esther became the queen of Persia. She was a beautiful young lady. And yet as the years continued after that, there was another man called Haman, one of the king's chief princes, who took a strong dislike to the Jew Mordecai and the other Jewish refugees there in the city. And so he persuaded the king, let's kill him. Right there in the book of Esther, what you're seeing is the original Holocaust. Let's wipe him out. Let's remove them from the face of the earth. And the king of Persia is a big deal. And so he doesn't think of the Jews as that great a deal. So he's like, all right, if that's what you want to do, hey man, I mean, if you've taken a strong dislike to them, then go ahead and do it. But of course, as he said that, he had no idea that his wife is actually a Jew. Well, Mordecai approaches Esther and he reaches out to Esther as the queen and he says, please, plead the case of our people. He actually says in Esther chapter 4 verse 14, he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's appealing to Esther, we need you. We need your help, Esther. The challenge that Esther has got is she understands in the royal law, she cannot just approach her husband unannounced. That was not the tradition of the time. You can't just pop in to see him. And so she realizes if she boldly approaches him and he doesn't raise his scepter before her, she would be killed. It's the way it would. She would be putting her life in danger to go in to have a conversation like this with the king of Persia. But she sends word back to Mordecai. And in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, this is what she says. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. These aren't just stories. They're history. They're people just like me and you. And this young girl decides, you know what? If I perish, I perish. But risk is right for the cause of the Lord. I cannot allow this to happen to my people. And so she boldly approaches her husband in grace and kindness. He does not raise the scepter. And it would appear that, yeah, for such a time as this, God has raised Esther for the people. But thank God for her courage. Thank God for her faith. There's then the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. 
Again, the setting is Babylon and the Jewish exile that is taking place there. The king by now is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's set up an image of gold that he is commanding that when the trumpet sounds, everybody will bow to this image. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down for they worshiped the one true God of Israel. And they made it very clear that we will not do that. And so King Nebuchadnezzar makes it very clear in response that if you will not, then you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, the time comes, they blow the trumpet, everybody bows down to worship apart from these three guys. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has them, has them um, seized. They get the furnace so hot that as the men throw these three brothers into the furnace, the very men throwing in perish. But these guys were fine. It's amazing. They're walking around in the fiery furnace. They're fine. Not even their clothes are touched. It is such a moment of the faithfulness and kindness of God to them. They refuse to bow to the king. In Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18, we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Talk about boldness. Uh, Thank you for that. I'm not answering you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were filled with faith and if it means worshiping a false god, then we would rather die. We will entrust ourselves to God and we'll see what he does. They understood for the cause of the Lord, risk is right. And in God's kindness, as we know, he did indeed save them. Now we must understand, my friends, all these stories do not mean that every time we risk for the cause of Christ, that the outcome will always be safety and comfort. Because that's not the reality. I could take you to many other stories in scripture and in history where you'd see that that is not the case. John the Baptist, he's standing up against the king at the time. You're sleeping with somebody who's not your wife. What happens? Gets his head chopped off. Risk is right for the cause of Christ, but sometimes it costs us. If Elizabeth Elliot was here, she would tell you stories of, well, yeah, my husband risked it all, and it cost him his life. The point of these stories are not to say, listen, if you just risk it, God will bail you out every single time. It'll always be really great. They're here to help us, though, to understand that risk is right. For the sake of the fame of Jesus, for the sake of his glorious name, risk is always right, no matter what the outcome be. If I perish, I perish. But God is faithful and God is kind and he is worthy of our lives. For the sake of his name, risk is right. And we see that truth true in my fifth story today as well, in the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, I think, is the greatest risk taker of the New Testament. And he's really quite a man, is he not? You know, the mantra and mission statement of Paul's life is seen for us in Philippians 1, verses 20 to 21. This is the mantra and mission statement of his life. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says that towards the end of his life. And the whole premise is, listen, if I keep living, then to live is Christ. And if I die... Well, that would be gain because then I'd go be with him. You know, one of the challenges that we have, I think, in the West is we look at that verse and we put our own Western mindset on it. So to live is Christ. That would be neat. I could have a house with a white picket fence. I could be safe. I could have a family and kids. We could go on regular vacations. This would be great. To live is Christ and to die is gain because then I can go to paradise and be in heaven. That's not his life. That's not what he means when he says to live is Christ. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, Paul outlines his life. All this has happened prior to writing Philippians chapter 1. And he outlines all that has happened to him as he has lived for Christ. This is what he says. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the other churches. When you then reread Philippians chapter 1, it starts to take on a different tone. For to me, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. His point is, I can't decide which one I'd want the most. I mean, for me to live is Christ. I mean, it might not be easy. I might get stoned again or beaten again. But, oh, what a joy to follow Jesus. But to die would be to gain because then I could go be with them. I can't decide which one I want the most. The Apostle Paul did not live a safe and comfortable life. But what he did live was a life like a man who found a treasure in the field and was so besotted with the treasure and understood that his life was not his own, that he's just all in for Jesus. He's so amazed that he's been forgiven by the Lord, so amazed that he's been redeemed into his family, so amazed that he's been adopted into the very family of God, that his whole mantra is, as for me and my life, you can have it all. I'm just all in for following you because this treasure is profound. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he was willing to risk it all because he understood for the cause of Christ and for the fame of his name, risk is right. And he's joined by so many other dear saints all the way through the New Testament. We have the widow with her two mites, giving everything away. She just wants to entrust herself to the Lord. We have Peter and James and John and Lydia. We have Thomas and Andrew. We have Barnabas as he's talked in, in, right here in Acts chapter 15 alongside Paul. Brothers and sisters that just understood, oh, I'm willing to risk my life for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters, they've all delivered their lives. They've had their time. 
But now in God's kindness and mercy, I believe it's time to deliver our lines. It's our turn. It's our turn on the stage of history. What will your lines be? You know, maybe for some of you here today, that which the Lord will call you to is to take greater risk for him in terms of relationships. You know, church life, church is the dearest place on earth, but for some it can be hard. Some people are introverted, they find it hard to get around different people. Sometimes people have been hurt in church, churches in the past and it can be hard. Listen, maybe the Lord is calling you to take greater risk for him and just pressing in relationally to your local church. Maybe for others of you, the Lord is calling you to take greater risk for him in terms of giving. You do give and you do give faithfully, but maybe he wants you to give more. Maybe he wants you to really trust him and trust in his faithfulness and his goodness and to exercise the blessing that God has given you in Western countries like yours and mine. Understand that I've been blessed to be a blessing. I want to make a difference. Maybe the Lord is calling you. Listen, I get it. You're faithful in your giving, but come, trust me. Maybe for others of you, he's calling you to take greater risk for him in mission. You know, you don't have to go to the ends of the earth to do mission. As an Australian, you here in the United States, to me, are global missions. You live overseas. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations. We don't want to be having to move people into your area to tell people about Jesus. You are called to do that. It is you that has been positioned here by God to tell people about Jesus right here where you live. Maybe the Lord is going to call you to greater risk for him in that. Greater obedience to him, greater openness with all your unbelieving friends that I am a Christian and I follow Jesus and I want to tell you what that really means. Maybe for others of you, he will call you to different mission, maybe even overseas. Maybe even today you'll feel your heart stirring that maybe the Lord would have you go somewhere else. Maybe he would. Maybe for others of you, he's calling you to take greater risk for him in terms of taking Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Stepping out the boat and putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, Romans 10 verse 9, we read, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And this first Sunday of 2024 strikes me as a great day to get saved. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what an opportunity you have as we start 2024 to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to know what it is to be forgiven by Him and redeemed by Him and adopted into His family, knowing that heaven is your home and the best is yet to come. I was 20 years old when I did that and I haven't looked back for a moment. Listen, right now you are far from the Lord. You are hostile in mind before the Lord. You are an object of his wrath. But in his mercy and grace, he sent Jesus Christ for you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He died in your place, your substitutionary death, on the premise that if you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then I will save you. My friend, do that today. Don't wait another day to know the one who made you and knitted you together in your mother's womb and to know the one that right today is saying, listen, come to me and I will give you what you're looking for. I will forgive you and redeem you and adopt you and have a relationship with you.
That's what you were made for. And maybe today the Lord is calling you to take greater risk for him by getting out the boat and saying, as for me and my life, that's what I want. I don't know all of the stories in this room. I don't know all that the Lord will call you to this year to risk for him. But what I do know is that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. Praise God that Elizabeth Elliot in 1958 didn't play it safe. Praise God that child in hand, she was willing to take that step a step that would ultimately cause hundreds of people to ultimately come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Praise God that she didn't play it safe, and by God's grace, my friends, may you not either. Don't play it safe. For the cause of Christ, risk is right. Let's pray.